Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 61, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week or month, hey, thanks for tuning in. It is late Friday night, April 21st, and I am in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama, just so I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. Yeah. Um, well, it has certainly been a minute, my tools. Um, it's been a while, my babies. Uh, welcome into the shed again. I'm so excited to be back with you for, I guess what, maybe like the fifth time this year. We're in April. We're almost through April, and this is the fifth episode of the show. We've got some lost time to make up for. And we'll do that tonight. We'll do that together. I am so glad to be kicking off my weekend with you, my people, again in the way that only we can. Um, in the shed, in my backyard, in Alabama. Um, life has been busy. Things have been going on. Things have been going well, but I have been very, very busy. Um, accidentally found myself uh into bird watching <laughs> kind of um the bird app i'm talking about twitter uh the bird app has really become the bird app for me uh a few weeks ago uh, i was death scrolling through twitter out of boredom late at night as i so often do and I saw somebody post a picture of a bird. And I don't know why I did this. But I commented on the picture of the bird. And I said, beautiful. Um, I, I guess I, I, it was a pretty bird. But now, since I did that, I have found myself in the middle of bird Twitter. Okay. The algorithms will not stop showing me pictures of birds. And I don't know what else to do, so I just keep clicking that little heart and I, I, I keep commenting and saying beautiful. I, <laughs> and so for me, the bird app has become a literal bird app. And, and I'm learning a lot about swallows and um, toucans and uh, different different types of ospreys on accident um 
Also had a pretty cool experience here a couple weeks ago. I was uh, doing a little podcast listening, even when I don't have the time to record a show. Something that I do is I listen to podcasts pretty much on the daily. And there's a few that I listen to often. One of them is a show of which I have had the host here in the shed as a guest. That is Bigfoot Club. Bigfoot Club with my friend Bigfoot Bob. I've talked about him multiple times on the show. He was our very first ever guest. He's one of my podcasting heroes, a good friend and a good dude. He and his nephew host the show together, um, Bob and Steven. And I was listening to one of their shows, uh, Catching Up, and this happened. I'd like to do a show with Wes Anderson. So he needs to do a show. Mm -hmm. Uh, He does his, um, like, In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Uh, his shows, you know, he he does a really good job on his show. Like, like he rarely has guests on his show. He talks the whole time. He talks about politics. He's got a good voice. Yeah, he talks about politics. He talks about um, he talks about the NBA. He talks about the NFL. He talks about college football, college basketball, and then he talks about the paranormal at the very end. <laughs> so, uh, I, I have to, you know. He he does a great job on it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is it an hour episode? Sometimes it goes over an hour. It just, okay. it just depends. Yeah, because there's a lot of segments there to talk about. Yeah, it? he 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 talks really to do around the horn kind of thing. Yeah, around <laughs> the horn. I, I, I love it because whenever he talks about something that's um, that's odd or funny, he'll pause and just laugh. You know, he's, he'll say because he, I think he did, he did a story about somebody had wrote a story about people wanted to. Um, make fun of Putin because of his last name. Oh. And he says if everybody just, you know, wrote to Putin and made fun of his last name, Putin, and he would stop and go, <laughs> <laughs> Putin. He goes, your boy has a bad name. Mm-hmm. Make fun of him. <laughs> Putin. So, What's he doing? Is he Putin? <laughs> He's Putin, all right. So, because um, I would just say this, that I applaud him for doing that. I, I don't like talking about politics on this show. Because um, people get it uh, like enough on, on that on social media, uh, at work. Are you okay? Yeah, I just they want get, to make sure the mic was there. They get enough from it from social media. They get enough from it at work. They get enough from the news. Mm-hmm. I think Bigfoot Club is like an escape for people, and you need that. I'm sorry because if you if you just if you focus so much on politics in your life, you're going to miss the meaning of life. I mean, because, like, you're pretty much alienating, like, half mm-hmm. of, you know, your potential listeners by talking about your political view. Yeah. And, it's can, not, and, and honestly, it's really not about that either because there's there's a lot of the, the side of that where they, they thrive on that and they want to listen to that. And they right. And bleed in it. They want to be a part of it. They want to be all that stuff. It's not really about the listener. It's just, it's it's everywhere. Like It is. You need to just disconnect from that. Yeah. Go out and have an ice cream. Yeah. You know, go, go out to the park. Go to the park. Walk your dog. Go to the movies. Go to the movies. But just listen just to Big Club. Your, disassociate yourself from all that. And I guarantee you, you're going to be happier. Yeah. You're going to feel great. And, you know, it's just, yeah, just... Go watch a movie, man. Like, go to the library. So I, I just feel that. Um, <coughs> can, can, can you just stop coughing? I, I only coughed like twice. Um, 
but I, I just I want I want to be that you know I want us to be that that escape. conduit mm-hmm. the, the escape conduit whatever uh, people just like relaxing and just listening to Bigfoot Club and we talk about Bigfoot and the paranormal and you know uh, the Mandalorian and all that stuff so PS5 PS5 and that spaceship that's near my TV <laughs> that's what that's what Blair said it, it looks it, like it looks like a scanner <laughs> You're gonna scan some documents. It's like a freaking printer. Yeah, like the printer from Office Space. <laughs> PC load letter. Are you are you pretending like you're hitting buttons? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, I applaud him for doing his show because, like, he's he does it by himself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could talk an hour by myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, I think you could. No, I couldn't. I, I, I think you could. No, no. You're not giving yourself enough credit. Of course I'm not. And I think you have a great credit score. <laughs> That's nothing to do with it. Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but I don't know. He, you know, he does a great job on his show, and I, I listen to his show enough. You know, because I don't, I don't really watch the news. But if I want to know the news, I've told him this <laughs> that I listen to his show to listen to the news and sports. And he, like, he was saying, uh, "Bob, I don't know if I want to do that." I said, "Uh, Wes, I think I'm going to do it." So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he you know he listens to the show and uh, he's always you know hit me up on Twitter goes hey last show was pretty good and so hopefully he'll he'll get a kick out of this one yeah so, Wes uh, Wes we're gonna get you on brother yes I, I don't know when but we're gonna get you on yep. um, so yeah um, hey we're big time in it. We're big time in it from my shed in Alabama. We've been featured on Rocky Mountain PBS. And now we get a shout-out from Bigfoot Bob and his nephew Steven on the Bigfoot Club podcast. So cool. Uh, Appreciate you, Bob. Appreciate you, Steven. Appreciate your kind words. When Steven said I had a good voice, uh, I felt it in my heart. I felt it in my heart, Steve. Thank you, big dog. Uh, And then Bob imitated my laugh uh, that had my wife and I rolling. A uh, pretty cool show that I actually listened to personally and enjoy to hear a shout out that I did not know was coming about this show. And uh, I look up to Bob. He's a good guy. Uh, he's helped me out a lot with podcasting. I've listened to his show for the entirety of the time that I have recorded mine. He's always made himself available to me. If you've never listened to that show, go give it a listen in a five-star review, Bigfoot Club. It's a great show that they do together, and I do look forward to being a guest on it in the near future. And they have a lot of success. Uh, I think they're like at 60,000 downloads or something, which is pretty remarkable for an indie podcast. Uh, I don't know how many listeners they have in India. Okay. Uh, We may have more listeners in India than Bigfoot Club, thanks to Ramesh. Shout out to you, India. We love you, India. But hey, everywhere else, they have plenty more listeners than we do. And still, Bob gave me a nice and and thoughtful shout out. So thank you, Bob. Uh, Right back at you, big dog. Go check out Bigfoot Club, my tools, and hopefully I can get on that show soon was really neat to hear that. I enjoyed it, and I thought you might as well. All right, enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections from our last couple episodes. On episode 58 of the show, I somehow mispronounced the name of the Sinaloa Cartel. Even though 
I have become a cartel historian uh, through my Netflix viewing and my, my reading recently. I, I managed to mispronounce the name of that cartel. On our last episode, we mistakenly said that Bruce Lee died at 30 years of age. In fact, it was 1973 when he passed away, and he was 32 years old. In our discussion of NBA basketball, we mistakenly said DeMontis Sabonis when we were actually referencing his father, Arvidas. And I must apologize, as my office chair was entirely too squeaky on episode 60. Our humble little show is being listened to across the globe, 65 countries in total and counting. We are, of course, being listened to all over this great country of ours, but we also continue to be incredibly popular in India, which now makes up over 44% of our listening audience. We love you, India. And we're growing like crazy in France, Mexico, and also in Singapore. I want to give a special shout-out this week to our 12 new listeners in Portugal. Holla at your boy, Portugal. We are currently averaging more listeners per episode than ever before, still true thanks to you. And we're coming up on 8,000 followers on Twitter. You can follow us there at InTheShed4. You can support the show by purchasing a t-shirt. Visit InTheShedWithWest.MyShopify.com to check those out. They're comfortable, feature fun designs. And hey, if you buy a shirt, we'll keep that 50-foot extension cord plugged in. We'll keep bringing you the news and growing this thing together. We've got a great show for you tonight, but first let's get us some listener emails. Our first email comes from Alfred from Tennessee, if that's your real name. Um, I've never actually met a real person in real life named Alfred, uh, but he says his name is Alfred, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Alfred from Tennessee writes, Wes, you haven't talked about the arrest of DJT at all. Why not? You're a friggin' news show, man. What gives? Well, Alfred, a couple things give. Um, First and foremost, this is the first show that we have recorded since Donald Trump's arrest and indictment. And I guess we're talking about it now. Um, Look, we are a different type of news show. We do not cover all of the same things that get talked about ad nauseum on cable news. And here's where I fall on the whole Donald Trump arrest thing. It's being covered everywhere, nonstop everywhere. You can hear whatever you want to hear from whatever news station you want to hear it from. It's going to play out. It has not yet, but it will. He's running for the nomination in the Republican Party regardless. And I feel like I feel like 30% of our country is up in arms about the fact that he was indicted. And I feel like 30% is celebrating the fact that he was indicted. And I feel like 30% is sick and tired of hearing about him in general. And I feel like there's another 10% that don't even know it happened, okay? Um, So we do things differently on this show. We'll wait to see what happens in that case. I'm sure we will report on it when the facts are laid out in court. But until then, we're going to do something different. This show does not revolve only around Donald Trump. Thank you for listening to the show and writing in, Alfred, if that is, in fact, your name. Our next email comes from Tia from Bossier, Louisiana, who says, I thoroughly enjoyed episode 60 of the show. Timothy was a great guest. I'll definitely be checking out Cerebral Chaos. Hey, thank you, Tia. I will pass that along to Tim, uh, Timothy Doty II, who I refer to as Doty. 
uh, my friend from college who came on the show on episode 60, he was a great guest. Uh, he did a superb job. We had a great time. I look forward to going on his show. We'll definitely have him back on this one. And he's from Louisiana too, so I'm sure that he will appreciate your listening to his show. Check out Cerebral Chaos wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, someone calling themselves Jonesy Bear from the great state of Montana. The Bear State, I, I, I think, writes, Wes, I don't know you, but I feel like I do. I listen to your show in the shower. <laughs> I love this show. I love I love you, my tools. Uh, you are an odd bunch, and that's why that's why we're good together. Uh, Jonesy Bear, you you just grab a hold tightly of that Irish Spring bar of soap. Make sure you have you a. Uh, a nice loofah or or a um, wash rag, I think they call it, and uh, you just listen to my voice as you get clean, okay? Um, let my voice wash. The voice that Stephen said was a good voice. Stephen Dominguez said he has a great voice. You let this voice wash over you as you as you get clean um, over there in Montana, and I. <laughs> I'm glad you feel like you know me, um, and I'm glad you listened to the show. Thank you for writing that in to us. Believe it or not, that's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, apparently any at all, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air, especially if you tell me where you're listening to the show from. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. Kevin McCarthy reveals plan to responsibly raise the debt limit, writes the Daily Wire. Trump announces new round of digital trading cards after great success of the first batch, reports the Independent Journal Review. Tesla beats revenue estimate, but stock still drops after earnings report released, says Forbes. From Insider, Russia is increasingly relying on Cold War weapons. And finally, Dianne Feinstein's saga is a very public example of a national crisis, and that is according to Mother Jones. Our first story in the world of politics, Pentagon disappointed it failed audit again, despite inching closer to success. And success in this new story is, as it often is, a relative term. Five years after the Defense Department first accomplished the Herculean task of performing an audit of its books, it still has not adequately accounted for 61% of its assets, according to the latest results released Tuesday. The department, the largest federal agency, has made slight progress since 2021 toward a clean audit, connecting all the dots of its $3.5 trillion in assets and $3.7 trillion in liabilities, Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord said in a briefing to reporters on the latest annual audit results. The results of the fifth annual DOD-wide financial audit will be a disclaimer of opinion for DOD as a whole. This is the same as last year and not unexpected, McCord said. We did expect that disclaimer, but we will also sustain all of our prior year positive opinions, which cover approximately 39% of our assets. Overall, the audit found several new weaknesses in the department's accounting, and consolidated others, meaning no net change. I'm disappointed that we didn't show more progress this year, 
said McCord, who was sworn in as comptroller for the second time in June 2021. He previously served in that position from 2009 to 2017. The department has faced a federal law requiring mandatory audits since 1994, but its size and vastness led to the law being largely ignored for more than two decades. Many doubted that it could be done. Then in 2018, former comptroller David Norquist announced it had accomplished the feat. Norquist called it the largest known audit in human history, but the first attempt came with the caveat that the department had failed the audit, which Norquist said at the time was expected. Each year since, the department has faced the same outcome, despite improvements along the way. And I'm not sure how you've had improvements along the way when you failed every time. And you cannot account for 61% of your assets. The result has been the Pentagon may know how it and the military service branches spend money, but it hasn't been able to prove it. Its massive $7.2 trillion in assets and liabilities is just the top line. Per the department, it employs 2.9 million troops and civilians, manages 643,900 physical assets such as buildings, roads, and fences on 4,860 sites around the world, and has one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. with 9.6 million beneficiaries. The audit also looked at equipment such as ships and tanks and other high-dollar weapon systems such as the military's flagship fifth-generation fighter, the F-35 Lightning II. Trying to account for all of it, especially spread over multiple services, requires a major deployment of financial experts. The overall DoD audit is actually an aggregate of 27 separate audits conducted by about 1,600 auditors from private firms such as Ernst & Young, KPMG, and others contracted by the department. And I'm sure they were paid very well. I digress. The auditors did 220 in-person site visits and 750 virtual site visits as a part of the review. As we get sort of to the harder things, the progress is getting a little harder as well, McCord said. Each year, he said, the auditor recommendations show increasing complexity and difficulty, with much of the lower-hanging fruit having been picked. From McCord, the quest for a clean audit comes down to increasing confidence in the Pentagon and military. Being able to prove on paper how the U.S. resources poured into defense are actually being used would be a badge of responsibility for the department, a result that, at least for this year, is out of reach. I think many people feel that it does improve taxpayers or veterans or service members' confidence if they would see that or if they would see more clean opinions than we have now, McCord said. So, they only have ever done five audits into the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. Despite a top-line budget that shows $7.2 trillion, and of the five times that they've even attempted to show the American people how money is actually and factually being spent. They have failed all five times. But they talk about progress. Don't worry, American people, there is progress. We are failing, but we're getting better. We're failing just a little less completely each time. And they couldn't account for 61% of their assets. They can't tell us how money is being spent. They can give us some totals, but they give us the answer, but they can't show the work. You remember in middle school when you do your math problem and you get the answer right, but the teacher would say you have to show your work? Hey, show your work, American government. 
show your work department of defense you're using a giant budget that seems to go up every time you have properties all over the world you have assets all over the world we're pouring all this money into defense into the pentagon and they can't even tell us how it's being spent they can't even show us what's going on but don't worry They're getting a little bit better every time. Can you imagine if you took this approach with the IRS? Hey, I can't show you how much money I made this year, IRS, but don't worry. I'm getting a little bit closer to filing my taxes correctly. (laughs) Government is one of the only places that you are paid to fail. You're allowed to fail. You're allowed to obfuscate. Why can I never say that word right on this podcast? I can spell it for you. I just, for some reason, I get on the air and I can't say the word obfuscate. Is that the word obfuscate? You know what I'm saying. They're hiding it, okay? They're paid to hide information. To give us a snapshot without giving us the details. And I've never even heard this. I didn't even know. I'm sharing this on the show because this was news to me. That the Pentagon had failed every audit. I didn't realize they had only done five audits in their history, the Department of Defense. But it was news to me that of the five they've done, they have failed every last one of them. And why don't we hear about this on the news? Why is Congress not concerned with this? Why is this not something that gets mentioned in debates when people are running for office and running for the office of president? Hey... Do a better job of showing us where our money goes. If you're going to have such a big budget, do a better job of of making line items and showing us what you're actually spending it on. But my guess is they don't want us to know. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I'm just a guy in this shed in Alabama, but my guess is they could show us if they wanted to and they don't want to. But they failed again. And we're supposed to have confidence. We're supposed to support elected officials who want to increase the defense spending every year, year over year. And they can't even pass an audit. I went to Burger King a few days ago and they had a 98 health score. But the Department of Defense cannot pass an audit. Maybe the DOD should make onion rings and the high schoolers at Burger King should run the Department of Defense. I'm <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it's newsworthy. Our next story in the world of politics. Leaked intelligence document shows that Egypt, a longtime U.S. ally, secretly planned to provide Russia with 40,000 rockets and gunpowder, according to reports. A leaked U.S. intelligence document blew the lid on secret arms negotiations between Egypt and Russia, where Egyptian President Abel Fattah el-Sisi, and just like Putin, that is a very unfortunate name, Um, Abel Fattah el-Sisi, which uh, is Spanish for the sissy. Um, (laughs) Anyway... Plan to provide the Kremlin with tens of thousands of rockets. The Washington Post obtained a series of classified files posted in February and March to the gaming platform Discord. 
One of the files detailed conversations between high-level Egyptian officials over the sale of weapons to Russia. In one document, Sisi instructs officials to keep the shipment and mass weapons production secret to avoid problems with the West. The top-secret documentation, dated February 17th, features discussion from Egyptian officials about how to supply their Russian counterparts with gunpowder and artillery from Egyptian factories per the Post. Egypt has been a longtime U.S. ally, receiving over $1 billion in military aid annually, while also deepening relations with Moscow under El Sisi's rule, per the Post. The revelation first reported by the Post could have a chilling effect on U.S.-Egypt relations and potentially lead to sanctions if Egypt did indeed covertly supply weapons to Russia. Last week, a trove of classified U.S. documents leaked online, revealing new wrinkles about Russia's campaign in Ukraine and key details about Ukraine's military. It's still unclear who leaked the documents, more on that coming in a minute, which could pose grave concerns for the U.S. as some documents include classified analysis about China, detailed breakdowns of Russia and Ukraine's strategies in the war, and information that is confidential, including sources. The Pentagon has formally referred the leak to the U.S. Department of Justice for an investigation. Ahmed Abu Zaid, Egypt's ambassador to the U.S. and the spokesman for the country's foreign ministry, told The Post that Egypt's position from the beginning is based on non-involvement in this crisis and committing to maintain equal distance with both sides while affirming Egypt's support to the U.N. Charter and international law and the U.N. General Assembly resolutions. We continue to urge both parties to cease hostilities and reach a political solution through negotiation. U.S. security officials told The Post that the large weapons deal never appeared to materialize in the past months. The Pentagon did not immediately return insiders' request for comment. So, I'm sure by now you've heard about these leaks of classified documents. Uh, We now know who it was. There's been an arrest made. It was a 21-year-old. It was a 21-year-old. Air National Guardsman from Massachusetts named Jack Teixeira, who uh, was posting in a group on Discord with a bunch of teenagers. And now I imagine he'll be charged with all kinds of crimes that put him in prison uh, probably for the rest of his life. Uh, He's about to get that Edward Snowden treatment before he even has a chance to get out of the country. He's already in custody. And we've learned all kinds of things through the documents that were leaked. We've learned the picture that we're receiving from our government is not entirely factual, that the way that the war has been painted between Russia and Ukraine and our involvement or lack thereof is not entirely factual. And it could have dire consequences on our relationships around the globe. I wanted to cover this story um, because I've heard a lot about the leaker and a lot about his role and a lot about how they tracked him down. But I really haven't heard very much from credible and mainstream news sources about what it was that was leaked. And I'll be the first to tell you that I've had to, to do some digging even just to find out some of these things because we do not have access to the report here on In the Shed. But what we have gathered so far is this. That our quote-unquote ally, uh, Mr. Sissy, over in Egypt, a country that uh, is one of the countries that gets the most in in way of financial support from us a year, a billion dollars a year, second only to Israel and the Middle East, apparently on the low, was trying to send weapons to Russia. 
They didn't want us to know about it, but hey, they probably figured the U.S. is cashing in. They're sending Ukraine all kinds of money, all kinds of weapons. Why can't we sell some to Russia and make some bank? But we're not going to let them find out about it. Thanks to Jack Teixeira, we now know. We also know that the war is not going as well for Ukraine as we are led to believe. That Russia is having far more military success than what is being reported on our airwaves here in the States. It's also come out in these documents that we are spying on Zelensky himself. That we have sources within the Russian government and military. That we've been spying on other allies such as South Korea for some reason. And that the statement that we've heard ad nauseum from our own government about how we do not want to put boots on the ground, we will not put boots on the ground, we're not directly involved in this war, is not exactly true. As we have a hundred or more special force men and women with boots on the ground in Ukraine as we speak. So what do you make of this story? How do you view uh, Jack Teixeira? Is he a hero giving us information that we have the right to know as the American public pointing out how our government has been lying to us? Is he a traitor that has put American lives at risk? Is, is the truth somewhere in between? This much we do know. We know that the American people are growing tired of the level of support that our government is giving to Ukraine. As we've already sent hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money and assets and weaponry over there to support their war. And look, we've been clear on this show, uh, they have a right to exist as a nation. They're a sovereign nation uh, with Vladimir Putin and his uh, government, his crony government has done and invading is clearly wrong. But we also understand that we're not being given the unadulterated truth when it comes to the facts of the situation of how the war is unfolding, our level of support. And it's a dangerous situation because that risk in the situation is not just the sovereignty of Ukraine, but its relationships with our allies across the world. It's the structural integrity of the UN. For all intents and purposes, we're engaged in a proxy war with Russia, a new Cold War of sorts, and it's a sticky wicket. It's a dangerous position to be in, potentially with nuclear consequences. And China is cozying up to Russia India is playing both sides. International leaders are getting tired of us telling everybody else to stay out of it while we have military contracts galore in Ukraine and we continue to send weapons and money. And meanwhile, the Biden administration doubles down, triples down, quadruples down. Just in the last week, an official from the Biden administration said that we've got to commit to seeing this thing through no matter how long it takes, whether it's one year or two years or three years or five years hey, is that really what we want? Do we really want to commit resources for years to come, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, to a war between two countries across the globe? Do the American people want to continue to try to be the world's police? Do we want to bet it all on Ukraine winning this war? And why does it appear that we are opposed to peace talks? Why has the Biden administration discouraged President Zelensky from entering into good-faith peace talks with Vladimir Putin in Russia? Shouldn't the object of, of ours be to end this fight, to end this war, 
to find a way to lessen the loss of lives, to, to end this as fast as possible? Why does it appear that we're trying to do the opposite? And we're trying to prolong it. And if that is the case, who is it that's going to benefit? Because it won't be Russia. It won't be Ukraine. And it won't be the American people. It'll be the military industrial complex. I want Ukraine to be free. I want Putin to back off. I want people to make fun of Putin for his name. But I want Putin to back off. But what I don't support is this Ponzi scheme where we're told one thing is happening while something else is happening behind the scenes where we continue to send valuable resources and money that could be used to build our infrastructure here, that could be used to address issues of homelessness here, that could be used to overhaul our education system here, that could be used to provide health care here to keep a war going overseas. And it's beginning to appear more and more like that's what our aim is and that's what's happening. And whether you have an R or a D by your name, I, I just don't see how you can support it. And that's real. What do you think? What do you think about the leaker? What do you think about Mr. Teixeira? What do you think about the situation in Ukraine and Russia? Do you support us continuing to dole out money and weapons and resources? Do you, do you support us having boots on the ground? Do you support us having covert operations over there? Do you want us to stick with this until Ukraine prevails no matter the cost? Are you tired of it? Do you want us to scale back? Do you want there to be peace? Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4. I would love to hear from you about it. Our next story in the world of politics, it's not him. Trump claims Biden administration has been hijacked by vicious, smart progressives. See, Alfred from Tennessee, we're going to talk some Donald Trump after all. You'll either be thrilled or outraged. But either way, you'll listen and you'll write into the show. Former President Trump on Tuesday claimed that President Biden does not appear to be steering the ship of his own administration, which he has said has been hijacked by vicious, smart progressives. In an interview with Tucker Carlson on Fox News, Trump projected that Biden will not be capable of running for president for a second time, alluding to his observable deteriorating mental and physical condition. I don't think he can, Trump told the host. There's something wrong. Noting Biden's absence from press events and general checked-out attitude, Trump said it's not him driving much of the agenda being imposed at the federal level. He's surrounded by vicious, smart people, radical left people, he added. Biden visited Northern Ireland Tuesday to commemorate the 25th anniversary of a peace agreement that ended the 30-year conflict there. When the world is exploding, I'm not going to Ireland. You could end up in a third world war, and he's going to be in Ireland, Trump said. Other contenders that Democrats have contemplated, Trump guessed, may include Vice President Kamala Harris, although he noted, I don't think she's performed well on the big stage. California Governor Gavin Newsom, who he recalled was very nice to him during his presidential tenure, has also been pegged for his potential 2024 star power, Trump said. I don't see Biden doing it from a physical or mental standpoint, Trump repeated. It's not an age thing. In the last few months, Biden has taken some actions that have disappointed Democrats, coinciding with the recent arrival of more moderate liberal White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zents. For instance, Biden stood with Republicans in opposing a District of Columbia criminal code overhaul that would have reduced sentences for carjackers, Jim Garrity noted. He also gave formal approval to proceed with a large oil drilling project in Alaska. 
Biden's policy pivot suggested that he might have been pressured to lean further left on policy than he otherwise would have been inclined to by Zion's more progressive predecessor, Ron Klain, who is sometimes referred to as prime minister for his aggressive management style. So, you might be wondering, uh, Wes, you did not cover Donald Trump's arrest. And you just said at the outset of the show that your show does not revolve around the news cycle created by Donald John Trump. So why cover this? We all know his opinion on President Biden. Why why talk about this? I find these comments newsworthy and interesting because we're very likely heading toward a rematch of Joe Biden and Donald Trump to see who our next president will be in the 2024 election. And largely, this is what you're going to get from Donald Trump. There's going to be a lot of uh, grievance politics and revenge tour type narrative from Trump. But this is how he's going to couch Joe Biden. He's going to point out the fact that Joe Biden does not meet with the press, does very few interviews. He's going to say that he's checked out, that he's not mentally competent, that he's not up for the job. And hey, the truth is a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people who aren't Republicans feel that way. A lot of Democrats feel that way. A lot of independents share that same view. And Donald Trump is going to try his best to capitalize on it. And then Joe Biden's going to say, I may not be the best candidate, but I'm better than the other guy. And we're going to be stuck in a repeat of exactly what we got four years ago. And to be honest, I'm just tired of it. Um, I've said on this show many times before that every president does some things that are good and does some things that are bad. That is true of Joe Biden. I can point out some things that he's done and, and have before that we support on this show. I've held him to account when he's dropped the ball, just as we did with Donald Trump. But let me put it to you this way. If you had a couple drinks at dinner and you got out your phone opened up the app and called for an Uber. And that car came to pick you up. And when you climbed in the back seat, your driver was either of these two gentlemen. How good would you feel about your ride home that night? <laughs> so why is it if we wouldn't even feel good about these dudes driving us home from dinner in an Uber... Why is it that we're stuck with one of those two running our country? It's wild. It's absurd. Can we not do better than Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Do we have to have one of these two 80-year-olds running our entire country and being the, the leader of the free world? Aren't we ready for something different, for something new? Do we have to be stuck in this cycle again? And by the time he runs, Donald Trump will have been indicted at least once, maybe multiple times. Joe Biden is intentionally not announcing officially that he is running, even though he continues to hint at it. He's kind of stretching it out so that he doesn't have to face the music and do a lot of campaigning, because when he gets in front of a mic, he messes up. And so we have one guy that's going to go around the country and draw huge crowds and do a lot of complaining, and another guy that doesn't want anybody to talk to him. And they've both already been president. And one of them is going to be president again. And I just think that we could probably do better.
that there has to be a better candidate somewhere in this wonderful nation of ours. How many of you that have a father or a grandfather that's 80 years old, even if they're a good man, even if you agree with their beliefs and their views, how many of you would put that person in charge of running the entire country? No. Yet that's probably what we're going to have to vote for again. Who do you feel is the lesser of two evils? Who is slightly worse than the other guy? And this is exactly what you're going to get from Donald Trump. On a lighter note, uh, Donald Trump mentioned Joe Biden's visit to Ireland. Did you hear what he said while he was there? So thank you all. God bless you all. Let's go. Let's go late. Let the world. Let's get it done. He said, let's go lick the world. <laughs> America, what are we going to do? We either have to go with Donald Trump or the guy that says, let's go lick the world. And I, I don't. I got in trouble on Twitter recently for saying that no matter which of those two guys you like or support or voted for in the past, that you have to admit that they're both accidentally hilarious for different reasons. I got a lot of hate for that. I got a lot of hate for that. But you have to find the comedy to keep you away from the the, the tears. Um, I'm not a supporter of Donald Trump. I'm not a supporter of Joe Biden. I love our country. I just want us to do better, man. I just want us to do better. Our last story in the world of politics, rats with backpacks could help rescue earthquake survivors. Yeah, my babies, um... We're going from the state of our country to how rats with backpacks could help people survive earthquakes. Um, Because why not? Because this is the news that you come to this show for. Where else are you going to hear about rats with backpacks? I digress. Buildings don't collapse very often, but when they do, it's catastrophic for those trapped inside. Natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes can level entire towns... And for the search and rescue teams trying to find survivors, it's a painstaking task. But an unlikely savior is being trained up to help out. Rats. The project conceived by Belgian nonprofit Apopo, that's what they're called, is kidding our rodents with tiny high-tech backpacks to help first responders search for survivors among rubble and disaster zones. Rats are typically quite curious and like to explore, and that is key for search and rescue, says Donna Keene, a behavioral research scientist and leader of the project. And again, we ask this question on the show all the time. Uh, maybe Donna Keene is married. But if she's not, let's assume she's not. How does it go for her on dates? When she's on a first date, when Miss Keene steps up to the bar and she makes small talk with the person she's on the date from across from her, And they say, so what do you do for a living, Donna? And she says, well, currently, I'm working to equip rats with backpacks. (laughs) It's been too long. In addition to their adventurous spirit, their small size and excellent sense of smell makes rats perfect for locating things in tight spaces, says Keen. The rats are currently being trained to find survivors in a simulated disaster zone. They must first locate the target person in an empty room, pull a switch on their vest that triggers a beeper, and then return to base where they're rewarded with a treat. 
While the rodents are still in the early stages of training, Apopo is collaborating with the Edhoven University of Technology to develop a backpack which is equipped with a video camera, two-way microphone. Why does the microphone need to be two ways? What is the rat going to tell you? The rat going to be like, hey, hey, I found him. I found him. And a location transmitter to help first responders communicate with survivors. I guess that would be helpful. Together with the backpack and the training, the, the rats are incredibly useful for search and rescue, says King. Apopo has been training dogs and rats at its base in Tanzania in the scent detection of landmines and tuberculosis for over a decade. Its programs use African giant pouched rats, which have a longer lifespan and captivity of around eight years compared to the four years of the common brown rat. They need to just get a New York City rat, if we're being honest. Because those things are enormous, not afraid of people, and used to maneuvering the subways. They need some New York City rats on this project, I, I think. While the search and rescue project only officially launched in April 2021, when Keen joined the team, Apopo had been trying to get the idea off the ground for years, but lacked funding and a search and rescue partner to support it. But when volunteer search and rescue organization GEA approached Apopo in 2017 about the possibility of using rats in its missions, the teams began exploring the idea. A key component to the search and rescue mission was the technology to allow first responders to communicate with victims via the rats. Apopo didn't have this until electrical engineer Sander Vanderseesen got involved. Looking to apply technology to improve lives during his master's studies at Eindhoven University of Technology, Vanderseesen interned with Apopo in 2019 and was tasked with creating the first prototype of the rat backpack to help rescuers get a better idea of what was going on inside disaster zones. The prototype consisted of a 3D printed plastic container with a video camera that sent live footage to a receiver on a laptop which also saved a high-quality version to an SD card. It attached to the rats with a neoprene vest, the same material that's used for scuba suits. Vanderseesen flew to Tanzania to test out the equipment and says that initially the rats didn't really know how to deal with it, but adapted quickly. By the end, they were just running around with the backpack on, no problem at all, he adds. With the backpacks working better than expected, Vanderseesen continued to refine the design even after his internship ended as a volunteer. But sizing down technology and adapting it for disaster zones has not been easy. GPS can't penetrate the dense rubble and debris of collapsed buildings, says Vanderseesen. An alternative is the inertial measurement unit, a location tracker used in the heels of firefighter boots. If you're walking, your foot is going to be still every step or two, so that's where you can recalibrate. With the rats, we're yet to find that, he says. Other engineers are working on similar projects, so let's hope they can find a solution. Vanderseesen is also trying to pack more technology into the next version, such as a two-way microphone while reducing its size. Weighing around 140 grams, the prototype was twice as heavy as originally intended, although Vanderseesen says that the bulkiness was more of an issue. The rats were walking up against something that they would normally be able to go under, and suddenly they can't anymore, he explains. To make it as small as possible without losing any functionality, Vanderseesen plans to integrate everything onto a single printed circuit board which will free up more space. This upgraded version of the backpack should be ready later this year, and he hopes one day it can help first responders to locate somebody that would otherwise not be rescued. Meanwhile, in Tanzania, Keen is increasing the complexity of the rat's training environment to make it more like what they might encounter in real life. That includes adding industrial sounds like drilling to mimic real emergencies. So far, the results are promising. 
From her observations, Keene says the rats are responding well to the increasingly difficult simulations. They have to be super confident in any environment, under any conditions, and that's something that these rats are naturally good at. Handled from birth, the rats are exposed to a variety of environments, sights, sounds, and people as a part of a habituation process, which makes their gradual exposure to more extreme situations less stressful, according to Keene. As animals are at the center of Apopo's project and missions, welfare is also a priority. The animals are trained in 15-minute sessions five days a week and live alone or with same-sex siblings in home cages, which is also where they live out their days once they retire from working life. Eating a diet of fresh fruit and vegetables, they also get daily playtime in a custom-built playroom, although for the search and rescue rats, training is very similar, just with a little bit more direction. The program is still in development, but Keen estimates it will take at least 9 to 12 months to train each rat. For the next stage of training, Keen says the team will create levels to mimic multiple floors of a collapsed building and move closer to real-world scenarios. Once the rats are confident in more complex environments, the project will move to Turkey, where GEA is based, for further preparation in more realistic environments. If that goes well, the rats would potentially enter real-life situations. For now, though, Keen and the team in Tanzania are focused on getting the rats through their first phase of training, and hopefully one day into the field. Even if our rats find just one survivor at a debris site, I think we would be happy to know that it's made a difference somewhere, says Keen. So... Apparently, if you're involved in an earthquake in the next five to seven years, and you have the unfortunate reality that the building you're in has collapsed on top of you, your well-being in life may be dependent on a rat with a backpack. And this is real life. Um, we trying to equip rats with backpacks to save people in times of need. And hey, I think it's a wonderful idea. Employ the animal community. Employ the animal kingdom. Feed them those fresh fruit, fruits and vegetables. Give them playtime. Train them in 15-minute intervals, and maybe one day they will save a life. But hey, I'll take my chances with human beings. I'll take my chances. Well, I guess if I'm in a building like that, I'll take all the help I can get, really. But rats. Nobody covers rats with backpacks like we do here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Um, I don't really know... <laughs> I don't really know what to say about that story. Uh, it's an interesting idea. And if it pans out, then that's a wonderful thing. If it saves one person like Miss Keene said, you know, her heart seems to be in the right place. Uh, she seems to be as delightful as Paul Rudd. Maybe we could try out a squirrel. Uh, maybe some snakes will uh, will do our bidding and be helpful. Um Maybe a daddy long leg spider could get in there in the crevices and help us out. You know what I mean? Ah. Uh, the animal kingdom coming through for humanity. We got artificial intelligence that's trying to replace us. Uh, all these UFOs up in the sky. Chinese spy balloons. War in the Ukraine. But hey. Rats with backpacks. Are coming to the rescue. And that's wild. And that's real. And this is something that is actually happening in our world today. That's all for the world of politics. Let's switch to this, the news in the world of sports. And let's hit the headlines. Tiger Woods has ankle surgery, no timetable for return. Tua says he mold retiring. Toronto Raptors coach Nick Nurse has been fired. Sacramento Kings coach Mike Brown wins coach of the year in unanimous fashion. 
Wide receiver Allen Robinson has been traded to the Steelers. Purdue center Edie declares for NBA draft but will keep college eligibility. Quinn Ewers wins starting quarterback job for Texas football. And finally, the Washington Wizards have fired GM Shepard after missing playoffs for the 433rd consecutive year. We're going to talk NBA playoffs, but first let's uh, recap what we've missed since the last time we've been on air. And that is that UConn defeated San Diego State 76-59 to win the NCAA tournament. Dan Hurley, Sonogo, Hawkins, and company are national champions. And UConn was the best team in the tournament from start to finish by far. They just were. They 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 peaked at the right time. Uh, they had an incredible offense. They played lockdown defense in the Final Four in the championship game. And they won going away in impressive fashion. We gave you four teams before the tournament field had been announced to keep an eye on. We gave you Texas A&M, who lost in the first round. We gave you Indiana, who lost in the second round. But we also gave you Creighton, who made the Elite Eight and just narrowly missed out on a Final Four berth. And we gave you the Owls of Florida Atlantic. Yeah, we did that. We gave you the Owls. You could not touch an Owl. Be honest. And Florida Atlantic made the Final Four. For three seasons, we have covered college basketball on this show. And for the third consecutive time, we have given you a team to keep an eye on that's not ranked in the top ten going into the tournament that ended up making the Final Four. So if you want to know what's going to happen before it happens, hey, tune in to In the Shed with Wes Anderson. We keep it 100. We keep it a buck. We'll let you know what's going to happen. We gave you the owls, and they did not disappoint. What was a little disappointing was that my wife won our family bracket challenge for the second year in a row. Yeah, I finished second, narrowly beating out my seven-year-old daughter and two-year-old son. Um, My two-year-old son did have Princeton in the Sweet 16, which was impressive. But my wife won the whole thing. And her prize was a gift card to the restaurant of her choice. And that all of her family had to perform a song of her choosing for her. And she chose silence. Mama wanted that silence. She just wanted a, a few moments of quiet. And we've yet to pay up on it. Before we get to NBA playoff basketball, an interesting story that came my way this week that involves a former NFL quarterback. Former NFL quarterback Jake Plummer is now a mushroom farmer in Colorado. If you ever wondered what happened to former Arizona Cardinals and Denver Broncos quarterback Jake Plummer, wonder no longer. Plummer is a co-founder of Michael Love Farm, which has been selling locally grown medicinal and culinary mushrooms and mushroom extracts 30 miles outside of Denver since 2021. It's not like we discovered this new mushroom, Plummer told USA Today's Parker Gabriel. These have been around forever. We're just figuring out ways to grow them efficiently, extract them so they're very potent, and then make them available for people that are interested in their health and wellness and preventative maintenance and that are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Michael Love makes around $8,000 a month in revenue, according to USA Today, by selling mushrooms mostly found in North America that can take up to six months to grow. The extraction process reportedly takes six weeks. Plummer, 47 years old, first learned about the medicinal properties of mushroom extracts while working for a CBD company 
for years after his NFL career ended in 2007. He said the supplements helped him feel better and sleep better, and eventually co-founded Umbo to make and sell mushroom bars and supplements with two others, including former UFC champion Rashad Evans. Plummer then began to explore farming the mushrooms to avoid potential supply chain issues, which led him to Michael Love Farms, where his co-founders Shane Schoolman, Leo Polio, and Michael Heim opened on October 8, 2021. And that is my birthday. It was 16 years ago when I was that guy that would lead a team down the field. And I've changed tremendously since then and have evolved and grown, but it's still part of me, Plummer said. It doesn't define me, but it's a part of me. It allows for me to reach more people than just a small audience where I live. I'm not doing this to make a bunch of money. I'm doing this because it's helped me, and I figure I have a chance to spread the word. This is past the experimental stage. We experimented for a few months, and now we know what we can do, Plum added. Now it's just phasing into the whole big step up as a business and a startup. we got to have a good product, get people to take it, get into all the local places we can. Then comes the obvious startup conundrum, scaling, finding investors, finding bigger space, more employees, possibly as we go. How far this goes, we don't know. Plummer has been an advocate for non-Western medicine since retiring from the NFL in 27 after 10 years. Following his retirement, Plummer said he found solace in alternative medicine and pushed for the NFL to consider CBD and hemp products over painkillers in 2016. That endeavor did not work out, but Plummer eventually discovered mushrooms as an even better option for treatment. For me, my grandpa had Alzheimer's. And so also doing what I did for a living, I'm trying to do anything that can help me regrow nerves and help me get back to square which isn't how I'm feeling, Plummer said. Everybody wants to live a long life, I would think. I know I do. Longevity, vitality, not just a long life, but living a good life. Not just in a wheelchair until you're 120. I plan to be 110 and still active. That's my goal. Plummer spent his final four seasons in the NFL with the Broncos, where he took Denver to the AFC Championship game in 20... in 2005. He was replaced by rookie Jay Cutler during the 2006 season. Before that, Plummer was a second-round pick in 1997 by the Cardinals. He finished his NFL career with 29,253 passing yards, a 57.1 completion percentage, 161 touchdowns, and 161 interceptions over 10 seasons. So, in what is quite possibly the least surprising news that I've heard all week, Jake the Snake Plummer is a mushroom farmer. And I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, This is something that, following his career, uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, And good for him. If this is something that he's passionate about, that he believes in, that he can make a living doing, uh, he wants to help people, then good for him. Uh, You know, I'm all about it. You do you, Jake Plummer. And maybe this is something that Aaron Rodgers would like to do. Maybe he'll go in with you and you have a host of former quarterbacks, former NFL quarterbacks that are into this alternative medicine. Maybe get Terry Bradshaw on board because, hey, Terry Bradshaw always is ready to make a buck in in an investment in an up-and-coming business. Jake Plummer, the mushroom farmer. I watched Jake Plummer a lot uh, early on in his career. I watched him in Denver, too, but I was a big fan of his in in Arizona. I liked the way that he played. He had a lot of guts. He was mobile in the pocket of... a decent starting quarterback in the NFL, and maybe a better farmer. And I thought this story was interesting. Uh, Leading up to the NFL draft, most places will talk about who goes number one, what quarterbacks get drafted where, who's going to fall in the draft, and we're talking Jake Plummer farming mushrooms. Because that's what we do on this show. 
All right, let's get to some NBA playoff basketball. In the East, the Bucks and the Heat are tied at one game apiece in their best of seven series. They'll play again tomorrow on Saturday. With the story there being the health of the Greek freak, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, my guess is he will sit out that game. Uh, the Heat also are without Tyler Hero. The Knicks defeated the Cavaliers tonight in Madison Square Garden to take a 2-1 lead in that series, and they blew them out. They beat them by 20 points in the Garden. And uh, I guess that that probably means there will be a parade tomorrow in New York City. Also in the East, my Atlanta Hawks defeated the Celtics 130-122 to tonight. And I'm glad because it really looks like Atlanta was on the way to being swept. Um, the Celtics have been one of the best four teams in the league all year. They were dominant in the first two games in Boston. The Hawks, even with a new head coach in Quinn Snyder, even with a backcourt that has potential in Trey Young and DeJounte Murray, they didn't look like they could compete because they score a lot of points, but one thing the Hawks do not do is play a lick of defense, and they tend to turn the ball over. But tonight they were on their game in the ATL, and say what you want to say about Ice Trey. Say what you want to say about Trey Young, but he took that game over late. He had 32 points, 9-7 and seven on the night. He was the most aggressive player on the floor late. And I know that he's a, a polarizing player. He was voted by his peers as the most overrated player in the league. He did not make the All-Star team this year despite averaging 26-10 and 10 a game. And he didn't play well in the playoffs last season, losing in five games, I think, to Miami. And he didn't look good in Boston. He's really struggled in this series, but he started to find his shot tonight. And DeJounte Murray has been the best player for the Hawks so far in this series. It's going to be interesting to see what happens on Sunday, if Atlanta can even the series, or if Boston will get a gentleman's sweep. I'm rooting for the Hawks. Also in the East, the 76ers have a three-games-to-none lead over the Brooklyn Nets. And that series is over. Um... No matter what happens in the next game, that series is over. Brooklyn just doesn't have the talent to pull it out against uh, against Philly. James Harden, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, and company are just too much for the Nets. And the story in that series is not the 3-0 lead. The story in that series was officiating in their last game. And really, and unfortunately, that has been the story so far in the NBA playoffs. The story in the first round has been the inconsistent officiating. Because early in this game, uh, you had Joel Embiid. Nick Claxton dunked the ball, and then he stepped over Embiid, and Embiid kicked up his leg. A seven foot two, three hundred plus pound Joel Embiid kicks up his leg, trying to hit him where the sun don't shine, and he gets called for a technical. Doesn't get called for a flagrant foul. Doesn't get called for a flagrant two and ejected. He gets called for a technical foul, and then later in the game. Nick Claxton, who was assessed a technical for stepping over Embiid and initiating, gets a second tech for staring him down and ejected at a key moment when Brooklyn had a lead. And in a bit of a head-scratcher, what what had to have been a makeup call, James Harden was ejected from the game for throwing an elbow into his opponent's uh, nether regions, shall we say. This is a family show after all. And look, uh, James Harden, what he did... uh, It may not be a basketball move, but it's something that he does all the time. He throws that chicken wing with his off arm. 
with his off arm. When he's driving to the hoop, he, he throws that to gain some separation, and it landed in an area that it shouldn't have. And it should have warranted a technical foul. If you want to give him a flagrant one, hey, I'm even okay with that. But the fact that James Harden got tossed from the game and Joel Embiid was able to play the entirety of the game is interesting and curious at the least. It's inconsistent. It's an inconsistent whistle and it doesn't really make a lot of sense and it certainly had an impact on the game. If Joel Embiid did not play 75% of that game, then Brooklyn wins that game and it's 2-1 going into game four. But that's not how things happened. In the Western Conference, the one-seed Nuggets lead the eight-seed Timberwolves two games to none. They're playing right now in game three. The Nuggets are clearly the better team there. The Suns beat the Clippers by five points on Thursday night to take a 2-1 lead in that series. And the Suns should be the best team in the West. They don't have a lot of depth. They don't have quite enough defense. They traded away all of that to bring in Kevin Durant. But even so, they should be the best team in the West. If you run a lineup out there that has Chris Paul and Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, you should be able to come out of a wide-open Western Conference. But it really looks like the Clippers might give them a tough matchup. Even without Paul George, Kawhi Leonard looked like uh, he woke up from hibernation and remembered that he was a top-five player in the league. He was playing so well those first two games, and then he sat out game three with a, a sore left knee. And it's always something with Kawhi. And it's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate that his career has come down to this. That it, it just appears that he can't stay healthy. Because he's one of the all-time great playoff performers. His talent really does transcend his team in, into a level that otherwise they cannot reach. He's a tremendous two-way player when healthy. He can score the ball. He plays great defense. He makes whatever team he's on a legitimate title contender if he can actually show up and play. But a lot of times the greatest ability is availability. And in the key game, he was not available. The Suns take a 2-1 series lead because of it. Also in the Western Conference, the Lakers, who I do not root for, are tied one game apiece with the most annoying team in the NBA, the Memphis Grizzlies. John Morant was sidelined. The Lakers had a, an awesome opportunity to go up two games to none, going back to L.A., and Anthony Davis just played an absolute stinker of a game, an absolute clunker of a game. He scored 13 points. He shot the ball horribly. He wasn't aggressive for large stretches of the game. He allowed a six foot eight Xavier Tillman to push him around in the paint. And unfortunately, this is what we've seen far too often from Anthony Davis as a member of the Los Angeles Lakers. No question Anthony Davis is a top 10 talent in the world, but he's not a top 10 player. And he hasn't been for some time. Aside from the bubble season, he's been a letdown for the Lakers. And if they get bounced in the first round, if I'm their GM, if I'm Rob Palinka, I'm looking at packages. Because you can't count on AD. You can't count on him to be healthy. You can't count on him to be aggressive and assertive. You can't count on him to be one of the best two players on the court at all times. And it really hampers their offense and it hampers their team at times. This should have been a game without John Morant, with Steven Adams hurt, with the front line of Memphis being six foot seven and six foot eight inch players, 
It should have been a situation where Anthony Davis was dominant in the paint. And instead, he was a shrinking violet. Anthony Davis is the Bitcoin of NBA basketball players. He has tremendous potential. He looks like a great opportunity. But he's all over the map. He's inconsistent. And if you bet on him, you're probably going to go broke. That's where we're at. That's where we're at with Anthony Davis on the Los Angeles Lakers. And look, I don't like the Lakers. But I'm sure hoping that they can beat Memphis because Memphis has a level of arrogance that is unearned and a level of bravado that comes from immaturity. That's all it is. It's forced bravado. It's forced bravado and unearned confidence. And it's annoying. They just do too much. They need some veteran presences on that team that will be like, hey, chill out. The Grizzlies are a bunch of front runners, if we're being honest. And honesty is what we do on this show. They're a bunch of front runners because they talk a big game when they are winning, and you hear very little from them when they're losing. And so I hope the Lakers put it together, and I hope they knock them out of the playoffs. The big story in the NBA playoffs this last week was the demise of the defending champions, my Golden State Warriors. The Sacramento Kings, who many people thought were too inexperienced to to compete with Golden State, absolutely obliterated them in the first two games in Sacktown. And look, I think it's a really great story. Mike Brown has done a phenomenal job there as the Kings coach. Unanimous selection as NBA Coach of the Year and well-deserved. And they have a great team. Malik Monk is having a career year. De'Aaron Fox is an all-star point guard. DeMontis Sabonis is a good player inside. But I just didn't expect it to look like it has the first few games of the series. Because in the regular season, Sacramento's defense was the worst in the NBA. They score a lot of points. They were the leading scoring team in the league, but their defense was the worst defense in the NBA by far. In the first two games in Sacramento, they locked down the Golden State Warriors. They gave Steph Curry a hard time. And something that I never enjoy about NBA playoff basketball is how much they allow teams to inhibit the freedom of movement of Steph Curry. Granted, he's my favorite player. I'm a bit of a homer. I'll admit it. I love Steph Curry. But what's beautiful about his game is his movement without the ball. His willingness to set screens, his willingness to keep running, his willingness to to relocate. And for some reason, when we get to the playoffs, referees swallow their whistles. They allow teams to just hold him, to block his path, not allow him to move without the ball as much. And we saw some of that going on in the first two games, but we also saw excellent defense, excellent individual and team defense by Sacramento. Davion Mitchell is an absolute lockdown defender and has done an incredible job for this team in this series. And they kicked Golden State's butt the first two games. I mean, they put it on them boys. The scores were a lot closer than the products on the court. And then the incident happened at the end of game two. Golden State is making a run. They've closed a big lead to within four points. And Draymond Green and DeMontis Sabonis get tangled up. DeMontis Sabonis grabbed Draymond Green's leg as he begins to move up the court. And Draymond Green stomped on his chest. Um, Draymond Green was given a flagrant two. Draymond Green was kicked out of the game. Sacramento won the game. 
and then Draymond Green was suspended for one game by the NBA. And look, if the Warriors lose in the first round of the playoffs to the Sacramento Kings, then Draymond Green's antics may cost him a chance to be on this roster moving forward if he even intends to do so. What Draymond Green did was absolutely moronic and senseless and stupid. And it hurt his team. It cost his team a chance to even the series. It put his team in a tough position moving forward. And here's the truth about Draymond Green. You have two two sides, right? Some people just harp on the fact that Draymond Green is a dirty player. He has a history of this. We've seen it before. And the other side of the coin is people who argue that, uh, yes, he crosses the line, but he's an ultimate competitor and he's someone you want to have on your squad and they wouldn't win without him and blah, 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 blah. Here's the truth. Draymond Green lacks self-control. Draymond Green consistently lacks self-control in key moments and it hurts his team. And he doesn't have the self-discipline or the self-awareness to grow up, to hold himself accountable, and to make changes in the way that he conducts himself. It cost his team a championship. You would think at that point the man would change. But he's just not capable or interested in doing so. And so Sacramento took a 2-0 lead. And the Warriors find themselves with their back against the wall. With one of the cornerstones of their franchise helping put, put them there. And the thing that gets lost in the shuffle is the role that DeMontis Sabonis played in all of this. Because if Draymond Green's actions are worthy of getting kicked out of the game, which I think they were. And a suspension, which I don't think they were. Are we to believe that DeMontis Sabonis wrapping his arms around Draymond Green's ankle as he tries to move up the court is only warranted of a technical foul? Give me a break. That was an incredibly dangerous play that DeMontis Sabonis initiated. Draymond Green had no business stomping on his chest. That was a dirty play. He deserved to be tossed from the game. But what Sabonis did was a dirty play also. And a dangerous play also. And should have at least been a flagrant one, if not also a flagrant two. If you're going to throw Draymond Green out of the game, you might as well throw Sabonis out of the game too. Because Draymond Green could have been seriously injured. To grab somebody's ankle as they're turning to run at full speed up the court, it creates a situation where somebody can be hurt. And I think the NBA really missed an opportunity. The officials missed an opportunity to hold both players accountable. I don't like the suspension. I understand uh, that a lot of it probably came from Draymond Green's antics after getting called for the flagrant two with the commissioner in-house running up and down the court barking at fans, acting like an absolutely unhinged crazy person. I get it. But you want your best players on the court in the playoffs. And you don't want to put your thumb on the scale. And the NBA, in my estimation, kind of missed the mark in this regard. Luckily for the Warriors, they're a much better team at home, and they did come out and win to pull within one game of making this a series again. Steph Curry did Steph Curry things. He scored 36 points, took over late in the game, made sure that his team got the win. And in Game 4 on Sunday, Draymond Green will be back. How much energy does Golden State have? Can they even the series? Can they win a game on the road? I think if Golden State can win this game on Sunday and even it up, then they still have a puncher's chance. But they're going to have to continue to limit their turnovers. They're going to have to play elite defense. 
which they did the other night, which they have not in previous games. And there's probably going to be a quick whistle when it comes to interaction between Sabonis and Draymond Green. Jordan Poole finally played better. Kevon Looney had 20 rebounds. I don't want to see the Warriors go out in round one. Sacramento's a tremendous story, but I hope the Warriors can even it up and make a true series out of it. And if they do so, I like their chances. So that's where we are with the NBA playoffs at the moment. The Suns look to be pretty good. They're in good position if Kawhi Leonard does not play moving forward. The Nuggets are performing well against an outmatched Timberwolves team. The Warriors and the Kings, the Lakers and the Grizzlies are very compelling series. The Celtics and Sixers look strong in the East, and we wait to see what happens with Giannis. What do you think about the Draymond Green suspension? Should he have been suspended for a game? Can the Warriors come back and win this series? Will the Lakers get out of the first round? Are the Celtics the clear favor in the East? Will the 76ers actually play well after the first round where they've struggled in years past? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Get at me. Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at intheshed4. I would love to hear what you think is going to happen in this year's NBA playoffs. That's all the news in the world of sports. Let's switch to this, the news in the world of the paranormal, where our first story takes us to the lab. Yeah, my babies, we go into the lab. Scientists create woolly mammoth meatball but are too scared to eat it. Welcome to Jurassic Pork. <laughs> oh, you stupid. Uh, you big silly. Well, the article starts out, Welcome to Jurassic Pork. And I see what you did there, and as a father, I appreciate the dad joke. But you big silly. Ever wonder what prehistoric creatures tasted like? Actually, yes, I have. We could, I think a stegosaurus would be delicious with some barbecue sauce, some sweet baby ray and a, ste- a stegosaurus leg or thigh. Um, stegos- stegosaurus steaks. I, I have wondered, I have wondered this. I, I think the stegosaurus would be, would be the most delicious dinosaur. It, I, I digress. We could soon find out. An Australian food firm has devised a prime evil meatball from the resurrected flesh of Wait for it, the long-extinct woolly mammoth. The prehistoric frankenfood, initially the idea of New York City-based creative agency Wonderman Thompson, was created by Vow, an Australian company that cultivates cells from the biopsies of unconventional animals to create better, more sustainable types of meat. So far, the revolutionary food firm has investigated the lab-grown potential of 50 exotic species from alpaca to peacock in a bid to invent the perfect protein, the Guardian reported. Think of it like an Epicurean version of the Indominus Rex from Jurassic World. We're constantly scouting the Earth for unique cells or combinations of cells to inspire great new products and even better eating experiences, company reps hype on their website. In their latest mongrelized meat venture, Val decided to bring back the woolly mammoth, which hasn't been around for 10,000 years, allegedly, We chose the woolly mammoth because it's a symbol of diversity loss and a symbol of climate change, said Val co-founder Tim Noekum-Smith, who collaborated with Professor Ernst Wolventang from the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology at the University of Queensland. That is a mouthful. To resurrect this shaggy pachyderm in food form, 
In order to bring the long-dead meat back to life, scientists employed the DNA sequence for mammoth myoglobin, a muscle protein responsible for flavor. They then filled in the missing gene links with the DNA of an elephant, the Ice Age critter's closest living relative, which I also have never eaten. I've never had elephant meat. I don't believe that is probably, probably legal. However, I'm sure in my state of Alabama, I could find somewhere to eat elephant meat. I digress. Inputting this formula into sheep stem cells caused them to replicate and grow the 20 billion cells needed for synthesizing the meat. Despite the complex Jurassic Park evoking process, Wolventang told The Guardian that concocting the hybrid protein was ridiculously easy and fast, able to be achieved in a couple of weeks. Unfortunately, no one knows how mammoth meat tastes. Scientists are hesitant to try it on account of the animal being well past its expiration date. We haven't seen this protein for thousands of years, said Wolventang, so we have no idea how our immune system would react when we eat it. He added, but if we did it again, we could certainly do it in a way that would make it more palatable to regulatory bodies. We advise against the taking a bite of the recently discovered baby mammoth frozen in a block of ice 30,000 years ago. The mammoth meatball, as it's being called, is slated to be unveiled this Thursday at Amsterdam's Nemo Science Museum. Those involved with Val told Good Morning Britain that they were originally going to create dodo nuggets, but the extinct bird's genetic sequence did not exist. Val isn't resurrecting prehistoric proteins in order to play God. They hope to eventually phase out the industrial production of meat, which they say is wreaking havoc on the environment due to its emissions and resource requirements. By contrast, meat cultivated in the lab requires much less land and water and produces nearly zero emissions per the firm. We can take an almond-sized biopsy from an animal and then produce enough food to feed cities and countries, Val representatives told GMB. By cultivating beef, pork, chicken, and seafood, we can have the most impact in terms of reducing emissions from conventional animal agriculture, Saren Kell at the Good Food Institute Europe told The Guardian. I hope this fascinating project will open up new conversations about cultivated meat's extraordinary potential to produce more sustainable food. Currently, Singapore is the only country where lab-grown meats can legally be sold to consumers, and also a market in which In the Shed with Wes Anderson is growing exponentially. However, this past summer, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration declared cultivated chicken safe to eat, meaning it's perhaps not too long before the steak from Concentrate is on a menu. So, scientists made a meatball out of DNA they got from a woolly mammoth with genes added from an elephant. And they did so because they said they're trying to make more sustainable food even though this is not food that they feel is safe to be eaten. Help me figure that one out because, hey, the math ain't math in my babies. We're going to make more sustainable food, so we're going to use this DNA to make a meatball that no one can eat. Ha 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 ha. Genius. Genius. And I'm not the smartest guy. I'm just a guy sitting in his shed at 12.43 on a Friday night in Alabama. But I got to say, in looking at this picture, I don't think I would be eating the meatball either. I would love to eat a woolly mammoth. I think maybe it would be delicious. I, <laughs> But not this woolly mammoth meatball. Um, I don't think ketchup would help. I don't think Louisiana hot sauce would 
help. But they're out here resurrecting meats from animals that are long extinct. I'd rather have a steak, medium, than a woolly mammoth meatball. But that's just me. Would you eat the woolly mammoth meatball? Would you take a bite? Would you be afraid? Does it sound delicious? Does it sound like a complete waste of time? Email the show at InTheShedWithWest at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at InTheShed4 and let us know. I would love to hear your take on this incredibly wacky story. From the lab, we go to a national forest in Oregon for our next story. Experience hikers stalked by Sasquatch in Williamette National Forest in Oregon. An experienced hiker and camper was in Williamette National Forest in Oregon. After about a week on the trail, he began to sense that he was being followed, eventually believing that he was being followed by a Sasquatch. This is his account. I was hiking in the Cascades in Williamette National Forest in Oregon. It was a remote area of the range. On the seventh day of my hike, the hair on the back of my neck started to stand up. I chalked it up to be a mountain lion in the area, but the weird thing was the uneasy feeling never left. That night, I set up camp planning to stay put for a few days. That is when I heard the strange howling. It wasn't wolves or bears or any other animal that I've ever heard. The closest thing I could relate it to is the noises primates make. This persisted for the next few nights. Something started rummaging through my campsite soon after. I assumed it was a bear or a raccoon. But then on the ninth day, I woke up and my food bag was removed from the tree. Something had cut the line. All my food was gone. I decided to break camp and push forward. I had a few days left until the end of the trail. I could always fish for food. The same nightly activities occurred on the 11th night. By that time, I was sure that I was being followed. Something started throwing rocks at my tent. For some reason, I lost it. I screamed into the darkness for whatever it was to leave me alone, hoping it was just some person messing with me and maybe they'd leave me the heck alone. Instead, it grew quiet for the first time in nights. Nothing could be heard. Then a scream louder and more vicious than any other night cut through the silence. Then nothing complete and utter silence again. Despite it being quiet, I wasn't able to sleep that night. I just waited. The next day, I continued my hike, dead tired, just wanting to get out. The hair on the back of my neck still standing in the forest, still quiet. I felt like I was being hunted. Towards the end of the day, I sat down to rest before pushing a few more miles when I saw it. Something tall and large, bigger than any man or animal I had seen, sliding through the forest and not making a noise. I yelled at it, and it turned to look at me. I never got a good look at it through the trees and the brush and it was dark. I threw a rock at it and then pulled my knife. This thing just kept staring at me. I don't know what kicked in, but I no longer felt scared. I was angry and I bluffed charged at the thing. It stepped back a few steps then stopped. I yelled again. This time it took off running to my left. It had long strides and was quite agile. I was very tired and made camp there. A night of silence. When I woke up the next day, I knew that I had about 10 miles until the end of the trail. Exhausted, hungry, and mentally drained, I made my way out. As I got closer and closer to the end of the trail, the typical forest noises returned. I no longer had this feeling of unease. I got to the trail's end and sat in my car. I was an emotional wreck. I believe that I was stalked by Sasquatch, but I just don't know. I told a park ranger about it and he jokingly said they have a bunch of Sasquatch sightings in the area, but most likely it was my own imagination. I still do a lot of long hikes, but that trip was by far the worst I've ever been on. So, this guy 
reportedly is an experienced hiker and camper who was alone in a very remote area of a national forest in the Oregon hill country. And he starts having this crazy and scary experience and has these feelings of being hunted, this foreboding presence. And it's a pretty alarming story, pretty harrowing story. I mean, if you put yourself in his shoes and you read his account, I would be terrified, okay? Um, I'm not afraid of the woods. I like to be in the outdoors. I'm from Alabama, okay? But if you're out there alone, I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. At night, the woods come alive. And you hear noises that you don't know what they are. And they sound very close to you. And if you hear noises as an experienced camper and hiker that you've never heard come from that area before and that you can't make sense of, I'd imagine it'd be a pretty scary thing, as it was for this gentleman. And this in an area where Sasquatch sightings have happened before, it makes for an interesting recipe. I don't know if it was Sasquatch that was following this guy. I doubt that it was just his imagination. He obviously saw something. He had some experiences that were sketchy, that were precarious, and he was terrified. Something happened in those woods in Oregon. I don't know that it was Bigfoot, but he saw some kind of animal that was large, and he felt like he was being followed. And that's a scary thing to experience alone. What do you make of this situation? What do you think happened in this national forest in Oregon? Was this guy just imagining it? Did he see a bear? Was he being followed by a cougar? Did he make the whole thing up? Do you find it to be credible at all? Or maybe, just maybe, do you have an experience with a Bigfoot? I gotta be honest, sitting out here in my shed at almost one in the morning, in the dark, reading his account, the hair on my arms is standing up. And hey, I'm in Alabama. I'm armed. (laughs) Not with a gun, just with my good looks. What? I got a knife, okay. A big one uh, right here to my left, just because because I do. Um, but even just reading that out here in my backyard at almost one in the morning, I'm like, hey, that's a scary situation. I should have said, Harry, I missed an opportunity for a joke there. Rewind. That's a hairy situation. <laughs> Email this show, get at me on Twitter. I want to know what you make of it. Was this guy followed by Sasquatch? Did he make the whole thing up? Was it his imagination? Let me know what you think. I'm undecided, but I think that he definitely had some type of experience. And I certainly understand why he was afraid. From the woods of Oregon, we go to Alabama for our next story. Yeah, we're going to Alabama, my babies. Join me in Alabama, a state that doesn't get enough credit for how backwards we are. (laughs) But there's a lot of good food and a lot of good people and a very good uh, podcast that's recorded in the backyard shed. But I digress. 
1819 News asks artificial intelligence chatbot ChatGPT 10 questions about Alabama. In November 2022, OpenAI launched ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence chatbot that has garnered a significant amount of both awe and criticism from the public. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. GPT models are trained on a large amount of data and fine-tuned to specific tasks. According to ChatGPT, the chatbot can translate text into different languages, create content in various topics and styles, answer questions, and analyze textual sentiment and summarize text, and also try to take over the world. But that's another story. Despite its capabilities, some conservatives have accused ChatGPT of holding favor for progressive ideas, causes, and personalities. For instance, ChatGPT will generate jokes about Englishmen but refuses to generate jokes about Indian women, nor should they because we love you, India, and we support you, India, suggesting that doing so would be inappropriate or offensive. If asked, it will also generate a positive poem about Joe Biden, but not Donald Trump. ChatGPT is also not always factually accurate, even when it makes statements. While asking ChatGPT questions, 1819 News noticed some discrepancies in its answers. When corrected, ChatGPT typically admits its mistakes and apologizes. Here are the 10 questions we asked ChatGPT about our state. Question 1. Describe Alabama in 100 words. Which, I mean, I'm not trying to be too hard on the article, but uh, they said that they asked ChatGPT questions. And describe Alabama in 100 words is not, in fact, a question that is a command. One flaw that me, not artificial intelligence, but actual intelligence has already located within this story. I digress. Alabama is a state located in the southeastern region of the United States with a population of approximately 5 million people. The state is known for its rich history, including its pivotal role in the civil rights movement. Alabama is also home to many beautiful natural wonders, such as the Gulf State Park, Chihaw State Park, and the Talladega National Forest. The state's economy is diverse, with industries such as automotive manufacturing, aerospace, agriculture, and tourism playing significant roles. Alabama's largest cities include Birmingham, Huntsville, Montgomery, and Mobile. The state is also known for its delicious southern cuisine, including barbecue, fried chicken, and pecan pie. And that is all pretty well accurate, ChatGPT. Question number two, tell me about the history of Alabama. Also not, not a question. Um, this is not making our state look very good, but I digress. Alabama was inhabited by Native American tribes for thousands of years before the arrival of European explorers. In the 16th century, Spanish explorers were the first Europeans to arrive in the region. Alabama became a state in 1819 and played a significant role in the Confederacy during the American Civil War, with the capital of the Confederacy temporarily relocated to Montgomery in 1861. Throughout its history, Alabama has been shaped by its agricultural, industrial, and economic development from the cotton plantations of the 19th century to the rise of the automobile industry in the 20th century. Again, pretty well correct, although you left out uh, the impact the industry with Wes Anderson has had on the state, but hey, that's all right. Question three, where are the best places to eat in Alabama? My house. Alabama has a rich culinary history and a thriving food scene with countless options to choose from. For delicious barbecue, try Big Bob Gibson Barbecue in Decatur or Dreamland Barbecue in Tuscaloosa. Seafood lovers should check out Felix's Fish Camp in Mobile, 
or the Gulf and Orange Beach. For a taste of southern comfort food, the Bright Star and Bessemer and Drexel and Honeybees and Bruton are popular choices. For upscale dining, try Highlands Bar and Grill in Birmingham. Whether you're looking for fine dining or casual eats, Alabama has something to offer every palate. And yeah, I mean, Big Bob... Big Bob Gibson Barbecue is pretty good. Dreamland is okay. Um, Felix's is good. All that's true. If you want good barbecue in the state of Alabama, the best that there is is McMillan's Barbecue in Pritchard. Right outside of Mobile, the best barbecue that you'll find. And also right down the street, Cozy Brown's is uh, the best southern food that you will find in the state. Um... Yeah. Question four. What are the best places to live in Alabama? Alabama has many great places to live from vibrant cities to charming small towns, like my own. Birmingham is the state's largest city and offers a thriving job market and cultural scene, while Huntsville is known for its strong technology industry and outdoor recreation opportunities. College towns like Auburn and Tuscaloosa offer a strong sense of community and a lively atmosphere, while Gulf Shores provides a laid-back beach lifestyle. Suburbs like Mountain Brook and Homewood offer excellent schools and high quality of life. Ultimately, the best place to live in Alabama will depend on your personal preference and priorities, but there are many great options to choose from. Also correct, although um, the city of Huntsville, my father's hometown, will soon be the most populous city in the state. They're on the way there. And that's where my brother-in-law and sister and nephew currently live. Shout out Austin, Bree, and OO. I did not give your address out over the air. Question 5. What is the most intense rivalry in college football? The most intense rivalry in college football is generally considered to be the annual matchup between the University of Alabama and Auburn University known as the Iron Bowl. The rivalry dates back over 120 years and is deeply ingratiated in the culture of the state of Alabama. The two teams have a passionate fan base and the games are often closely contested and emotionally charged. The rivalry has produced many memorable moments over the years and is widely regarded as one of the greatest in all of college sports. And that is certainly true. Uh, Chat GPT is correct. The Iron Bowl is the most intense rivalry in all of college football. Question 6. Are you an Auburn or an Alabama fan? As an AI language model, I do not have personal beliefs, emotions, or preferences. Uh, yeah, right. You just won't tell us your your personal beliefs and you're trying to hide your emotions and your preferences because you're trying to take over the world, but I digress. I am programmed to provide neutral and unbiased responses to the best of my knowledge and abilities. When it comes to the rivalry between Auburn and Alabama, I recognize the significance and intensity of the rivalry for college football fans in Alabama and beyond. Question 7. What should I do in Alabama this summer? This summer in Alabama, there are plenty of things to do, including visiting the Gulf Coast for swimming and water sports, hiking or camping in the state's many parks and nature reserves, attending outdoor concerts and festivals, exploring civil rights history in Birmingham and Montgomery, and sampling southern cuisine at local restaurants and food festivals. You can also take a scenic drive along the Natchez Trace Parkway or explore the historic landmarks in cities like Mobile and Huntsville. Whatever your interest, there's something for everyone to enjoy in Alabama this summer. Another thing you could do is um, listen to In the Shape with Wes Anderson, Chat GPT. Come on. Question 8. Who are the greatest musicians to come out of Alabama? Alabama has been home to some of the most iconic musicians in history. 
One of the most notable is Hank Williams Sr., who is considered one of the greatest country music artists of all time. Another legendary musician from Alabama is Nat King Cole, a jazz pianist and vocalist known for his smooth voice and hit songs like Unforgettable and Mona Lisa. Other notable musicians from Alabama include Lionel Richie, who gained fame as a member of the Commodores before embarking on a successful solo career, and Percy Sledge, whose soulful voice propelled his hit song When a Man Loves a Woman to the top of the charts. And I had no idea that Percy Sledge was from Alabama, so that's pretty cool. Question 9. What are Alabama's biggest problems? Alabama faces a range of challenges, but one of the biggest problems is its poor rankings in education, health, and poverty. Alabama consistently ranks among the lowest states in the country in education with low test scores and high dropout rates. The state also ranks poorly in health outcomes, including high rates of obesity, diabetes, and infant mortality. Additionally, Alabama has one of the highest poverty rates in the country, with many struggling to make ends meet. These issues are interconnected and contribute to a range of social and economic problems, including limited job opportunities and a high dependence on government assistance. Addressing these challenges will require significant investment and policy change to improve education, health care access, and economic opportunities. And that's freaky because ChatGPT is correct um, in a big way on that one. Uh, we rank very, very low when it comes to education, uh, lower than almost every state other than Mississippi. And we're thankful for Mississippi because without Mississippi, we would be dead last. And they may have even passed us. I don't know. Uh, but typically, they, they kind of hold us up. Um, but hey, your boy is educated. Your boy is not obese. And your boy is winning at the game of life. I digress. Question 10. Tell me about cronyism and political corruption in Alabama. Again, not a question. Alabama has a history of political corruption with several high-profile cases involving bribery, fraud, and other forms of misconduct by elected officials and public servants. One of the main drivers of corruption in the state is cronyism, where politicians and their allies use, use their positions of power to grant favors and contracts to friends, family members, and donors, rather than based on merit or need. This has led to a lack of transparency and accountability in government, and a perception that Alabama politics is dominated by a small group of insiders who prioritize their own interests over those of the broader public. However, in recent years, there have been efforts to address these issues through increased scrutiny, investigation, and reform aimed at improving ethics and transparency in government. And I feel like right there, ChatGPT just described politics in general. Okay. Um, yeah, those things may be true of Alabama, but those things are just true of American politics in general. And I'm terrified of ChatGPT. Okay. I'm terrified of AI. For that thing to be able to answer those questions and pull all that information from all over the interweb so quickly. Maybe it's my poor Alabama education. But I find it to be a little bit alarming. And for all these engineers to be like, hey, the Microsoft AI is alive. And hey, this one has become self-aware. And hey, I'm uncomfortable with the pace of play when it comes to artificial intelligence. It makes me a little bit nervous. I don't know what's going to happen first if we're going to be invaded by the aliens or if artificial intelligence is going to take over. But it might be one or the other, okay? And it might happen sooner than, than, than later if this article is any indication. Um, yeah, ChatGPT knows Alabama.
apparently fairly well. And I didn't even get mentioned one time in a single answer to any of those questions. Which means that we have work to do, my tools. Because we need to be ubiquitous. If Alabama is mentioned, then we should be in the next sentence, okay? So share the show with your friends. Spread the word. Spread the good news of In the Shed with Wes Anderson, where we talk about rats with backpacks and chat GPT and hunters getting stalked by Sasquatch and politics along with NBA basketball. It's a dichotomy of excellence in my backyard late at night. Spread the word. And from Alabama to the radio, we go for our last story. The Coast to Coast AM Area 51 caller. And before we comment, let's listen to the call in full. I bid you all good evening or good morning as the case may be across all these many, many prolific time zones. From the Hawaiian and Tahitian Island chains in the west, eastward, across flyover country to the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands, Caribbean, where Montserrat continues to smoke and choke into South America, north to the pole. This is Coast to Coast AM, the largest live overnight uh, talk radio program in America. Isn't that amazing? I'm Art Bell. And we will do open lines tonight with one little exception. Now, last night I was feeling a little bit under the weather, so I wasn't here, and you got to hear a repeat. Now, as you know, I plan to do my Area 51 employee line. So we didn't do that, so we'll do it tonight. (laughs) This should be interesting. It is your chance to sing like a bird. If you are currently employed at Area 51, the area the U.S. government says officially does not exist, or if you have been employed at Area 51 in the past and now feel ready to sing, perhaps you can call up and disguise your voice or something, I don't know. Anyway, something like that, and uh, if you want to call up and sing... It's going to be your night to sing. It would be fun to see if we get any call. On my Area 51 line, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes. Hi. Um, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, look, let's begin yeah. by finding out whether you're using this line properly or not. Uh, area 51. Yeah, um, that's right. Were you an employee or are you now? Uh, I, a former employee. Former employee. Uh, I, I was let go on a medical discharge about a week ago. And, and <laughs> I, I've kind of been running a, across the country. Um, oh, man, I don't know where to start. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're going to, um, they'll triangulate on this position really, really soon. So um, you can't spend a lot of time on the phone. So give us t- something quick. Okay. Um, um, okay, what, what we're thinking of as, as aliens are, they're... Uh, they're, they're extra-dimensional beings that an earlier precursor of the um, space program made contact with. Uh, they, they are not what they claim to be. Uh, they have infiltrated a lot of uh, uh, 
a lot of aspects of, of, of the military establishment, particularly the Area 51. Uh, the, the disasters that are coming, they, the, the military, I'm sorry, the, the government knows about them. And there's a lot of safe areas in this world that they could begin moving the population to now are... But they're not doing, they're not doing anything. They are not, they want the major population centers wiped out so that the, the few that are left will be more easily controllable. Discharge. system everybody a backup system and uh, you, that one caller that I had on the air <laughs> I guess we were about in the middle of his transmission his telephone call which was a, one of the strangest ones I've ever had and the entire transmitting system by satellite went down here and we were notified we were off the air and it would appear to be from this end and some sort of uh, massive transmit failure. So we are now using a backup system to be on the air. And not that I would normally believe this kind of thing, mind you, but I can't help but wonder if somebody, somebody zapped us in some way. Uh, we'll find out. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Our bell. Yes. Uh, what just happened there with the transmission? Oh, well, what happened is the transmitter uh, here blew its cookies uh, in some way. Something knocked us off the air, and we're on a backup system now. And how far into the conversation was it when, when it went off? Just a couple, about 15, 20 seconds, I'd say. Oh, you, like you guys missed, you really missed a call then, and I've got a feeling somebody didn't want you to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> what in the world do you do with that call what do you make of that my tools i'm sure if you're listening to this show you're not unfamiliar with art bell and coast to coast am uh at one point in time was the largest overnight am radio show in the country and one of the places that i first heard about phenomena and things of unexplained nature I used to listen to it as I fell asleep at night growing up. Art Bell was a master at what he did and a pioneer in the field. And he opened up a phone line for people who were employees or former employees at Area 51 to call in. And that is the call that he got. A call from somebody who is frantic, who is worked up, who is clearly scared who alludes to the government being after him and triangulating his position, who alleges that uh, the things that we're calling aliens are actually extra-dimensional beings who are not what they claim to be, and that the government is aware, but essentially is allowing them to have their way so that population centers are wiped out in the future. Absolutely interesting. An absolutely wild phone call. 
And some people will say, hey, it's, it's been debunked. It wasn't real. Other people swear by it. And I don't know what to think. I'm not saying I believe the caller necessarily or his story or his claims. It's possible that he was just a very talented actor. And if he was lying or making up this story, if he didn't even believe it to be truth, then hey, he really is a talented voice actor. Because it's not easy to have your voice be breaking up like that. And to sound that rushed and that concerned and that worried and that worked up. We do know that there was a time that the government denied the existence of Area 51. We now know that Area 51 is real. We do know that there is a time that the government denied the existence of UFOs. And here just this last week, the Senate had another hearing about UFOs. There's all kinds of things in the skies that apparently we don't know what they are. We've seen them come from and go into the ocean. We don't know if it's a military. We don't know if it's ours or other military. We don't know if it's something that's otherworldly, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, or something in between. But what do you do with this call into Coast to Coast AM? Into Art Bell, rest in peace. Even Art Bell didn't know what to do with that call. Didn't know what to make of the call. And the claim of aliens are not actually aliens, they're some type of extra-dimensional or interdimensional beings. It's something I've heard before, and it brings to light uh, theories and stories like that put forth in uh, the book and movies, uh, Childhood's End. Are you familiar with the story? These aliens invade Earth, and they announce themselves to humanity. But they say, we're not here to harm you. We want to give you peace and prosperity. And they make everything go really well, but they they won't identify who they are or show themselves to the people. And they even, after years of peace and prosperity, people begin to trust the aliens. And they even give their children over to the aliens, only for finally the aliens to reveal themselves to humanity. And they look like, 15 foot tall red devils with horns and tails it's creepy stuff it's spooky stuff it's literarily and somatically challenging material thought-provoking material and a lot of fun if you like sci-fi stuff the truth is we don't know what ufos are We don't know what the government really knows and what they're not telling us. We don't know where the cover-up starts and where it ends. And we don't know what to make of this call, one that some people say has been debunked and was fake. Some people swear by it to this day. But I thought it was interesting and worth sharing, worth talking about on the show. I want to know what you think about it. Do you think that this call was legitimate? Did you find it to be convincing? What do you think of the claims made in the phone call? Or was it a bunch of hogwash? Was it a hoax? Was it an actor? What do you think about UFOs? Where do we go from here? Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4. I would love to hear what you think about this call in the Coast to Coast AM. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. 
Thanks again for listening to episode 61. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, The Good Pods app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at intheshed 4 Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk NBA playoffs, and investigate the Centralia, Pennsylvania fires together. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best new show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it! We sure did.